Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about technology, power, society, and what it means to be human in the age of information. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess, and in this episode, we explore what is robot regulation and why does it matter? Today, we interview Ryan Kahlo, a professor at the University of Washington School of Law. He is a faculty co-director of the University of Washington's Tech Policy Lab, which is a unique interdisciplinary research unit that spans the School of Law, Information School, and Paul G. Allen School of Computer Science and Engineering. Ryan's research broadly encompasses law and emerging technology. Ryan is one of the world's foremost experts on robot regulation, and we've even been told that he is one of the people who has been credited with making robot regulation and robot law a field in the first place. It is our pleasure to share this interview with Ryan Kahlo with all of you. We are on the line with Ryan, and today, as you know, we are talking about robot regulation and why it matters. So my first question to you is, what is robot regulation and why does it matter? Um, well, uh, let me take that in reverse order. Uh, so, so first of all, um, robots are today and have been for some time um, a very important I would say transformative technology, right? I mean, we have um, remade um, the military um, using robotics. We have remade manufacturing. And when I say we, I mean, you know, uh, uh, United States, um, other industrialized nations have uh, made enormous, more enormous use of, of, of robotics. Um, and, and there's thought that um, robots uh, are leaving the theater of war and the factory and, and the space context and other places where they've been very prevalent. Uh, and they're on our streets now and they're in the skies uh, and so on. And so it's just, it's just a really important set of technologies. Um, and if, if robotics is as transformative as both its proponents and <laughs> and detractors say, um, then uh, then one of the things that's going to transform, one of the things that's going to change, is going to be law and legal institutions. Otherwise, it's not transformative. I mean, if something has almost no effect on laws or legal institutions, I would argue that that is not a transformative force. So, what is that effect that it's having on legal institutions? Why is robotics so difficult to govern? Well, let me just make the usual caveat um, that robotics are not a single thing, right? I mean, robotics is, is I mean, I often define artificial intelligence as uh, a, a set of techniques um, aimed at approximating some aspect of human or animal cognition using machines. Um, and that is a pretty high level of generality that includes the sort of 1950s ideas about symbolic logic all the way to, um, you know, contemporary classifiers and detectors that leverage, um, you know, deep learning. So um, similarly with robotics, I tend to think as robotic technology um, as being technology that can um, uh, sense the world, process what it senses, and then act upon the world. 
And I, mo I mostly use that definition, which is largely out of computer science. Um, depending on your discipline, people define robots differently and we can get into that if you want to, but um, I use the computer science definition, which is itself based on the sense think act paradigm, an old psycho psychological action theory. Um, and, uh, and so I use it largely to distinguish robots from a lot of other technologies. So for example, you and I, we're talking right now on laptops, laptops can sense, that's why we can hear one another, um, they have processing power, but laptops generally don't act upon the world, especially not in a physical way, right? Um, conversely, uh, uh, my kids have remote control cars that have, um, that have uh, cameras on them. Uh, they do act, they have actuators, they act upon the world, they drive around the world, they navigate the world, they sense, um, but they have no real processing power. Um, they, they're not robots in the sense that they don't process. And so um, though each of these things can act, it can be on a continuum, you know, Mars rover maybe has less onboard processing power than another robot, but it has some, um, you know, I think all three things need to be there. And so when you have a technology that can sense and, and think and act, that provides a certain set of challenges for the law that I believe are recurrent. But in addition, there are specific instantiations of robots, drones, for example, uh, cart-based delivery robots, driverless cars, surgical robots, um, that, that merit context-dependent legal interventions. Yeah, as I think about this, I almost wonder about what what the options are for regulation and how I would, you know, regulate a drone differently than I would regulate a Roomba, uh, et cetera. But I'm wondering before we, we get into the kind of how we maybe should think about some of the th these things or some of the options, can we talk about the history of robot regulation? Has there been like a history at either like a local, national or international level uh, in the law of regulating robots? I mean, yes, and it sort of depends on how far back you want to go in terms of in terms of history. So, um, very quick primer. I mean, this is I can't. I mean, um, and and feel free to give me the hook on this if I go too far. But right um, when we talk about regulation, we talk about law. Um, there are multiple sources of law. There's international law that is a, largely a function of treaties and other. Um, well-established sort of accepted human rights. There um, is domestic law, which can be legislative in nature or common law. It can be regulatory in nature coming from an, like a federal agency. And then it also can develop to state level, local level, right? So there's all kinds of possibilities for the law to get involved. Um, and that's just hard law. There's also uh, a whole world of so-called soft law is sort of, um, I think of the leaders of studying soft law as the folks at ASU, they're really into soft law. Um, and this, that's the idea of things like standards, you know, ethical bodies, you know, anything that's, that's not, you know, um, kind of command and control or, or, or the equivalent. It's not hard law in the sense that it's not, you know, um, uh, legal uh, firm uh, boundary. Um, and so, and so, when you talk about you know the history of, of robots, you know, there are a bunch of robot-specific laws out there. I mean, I could rattle a bunch off. For example, there are laws that talk about not being able to use a drone to interfere with hunting, 
in some southern states. Uh, there is a law in Nevada that is specifically about driverless cars and what kinds of things you have to do in order to test driverless cars on in that state, right? Um, there are um, uh, uh, laws uh, governing, um, um, uh, you know, uh, the, the approval of, of, of this or that robot for a particular purpose. Like there's all these laws out there that, are, that have a history. What I've found so fascinating is um, the, the, the perennial sense that robots are always in the future. Like robots have been in the future for hundreds of years. It's a very funny, unique thing about them. Like, you know, they always are heralds of the future, but they always have them. And so um, when I went back and looked at whether or not there was common law, like case judge-made law having to do with robots, I found some absolutely fascinating examples dating back at least to the 1950s. Um, examples where courts struggled with how to characterize a robot, how to categorize a robot, basically, um, and how to fit it into pre-existing legal categories. So for example, um, there's a case from the 1950s where we're trying to figure out um, what tariff should attach to robot toys that are being imported from Japan. Okay. And you and everyone's seen those robots, you know, these old, these cool old, old robots, you know what I mean? With the like the little lights and stuff. Um, they're getting report, they're getting, they're getting um, imported from Japan. And it's unclear how to tax them. And it's unclear how to tax them because at the present, there the law, the tariff schedule makes a distinction between dolls and other kinds of toys. Why? Because of historic trade-related regions with Europe. Okay. So how do we know when something's a doll versus another kind of toy? Well, a doll represents something animate at the time. Okay. And so the court, and so then the, the regulators are like, okay, well, we're going to tax this a particular way because it's mechanical. It doesn't represent something animate. Right. And the importers are like, no, 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 no. We want to be, we want to be taxed this other way because of course, uh, you know, it does represent. And so there's this fight and the court has to come, come up with a re, like a decision about like, does a robot represent something animate? And the court decides, interestingly, that um, robots do represent something animate because they're mechanical people, but a toy robot doesn't because a toy robot represents a robot. Okay, so these are the kinds of struggles <laughs> that courts have. This, this idea of, of whether or not a robot was a doll, it came up so often that eventually they had to amend the tariff schedule and add robotics, like robot toys as, their, as a category, like it was in parentheses, like robots to clarify this. Uh, another example was um, following this, this case about, about the straightforward robot, there was another case where people were importing um, uh, a, a famous robot where it, it looked like an astronaut and it had like an astronaut's face inside of this thing, but it was still like everything else about it was robot-like, you know, and it had this, um, this internal uh, panel that would open up and, it, you know, and maybe lights would go off and stuff like that. And, and the people that imported it were like, see, look at this. Like, you know, this is a person in here. It's an astronaut. Like you can't possibly think there's anything other than a doll. And the court was like, no, 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 although it has human-like features, it's still a robot. After all, people don't have guns coming out of their chests. You know what I mean? And so it's like, <laughs> and, 
And so I can just tell you, there is case after case after case involving a difficulty that the court had trying to characterize it. So we, we, the law is, robots are not new to the law. Robots are not new to the law. And, and in the, even though they always herald the future, we can always ask these fanciful questions about them. Courts and legislatures and, and so on have encountered them before. I mean, when, um, when JFK was first uh, elected, um, there was a, a huge movement to try to get him to do like a big official workshop around the displacement of labor from automation, which he ultimately didn't do. I mean, but there was like these op-eds about robots taking your jobs that you could just, you know, you change the, the graphic, but you could just transpose them to today. And it would be the same thing we saw um, under the Obama administration, you know, whatever years ago. Yeah, see, it's interesting because I feel like all these examples and, and different examples that I see in the news, they show that robotic regulation comes after the robot. So usually it goes like robot and then regulation. But it's it's weird because like you were saying, we're constantly thinking about robots being in our future. And so do you see any cases where the law and the regulation comes before the robot comes or is it always the case that the law is trying to play catch up with the robotics? I think it just looks like that. I don't think it's really like that, right? And so I think that if we dig deeper on some of these examples, it just looks that way. It's always looked that way to me. But nowadays I'm thinking it's not. So for example, um, take drones. We're told that you know the FAA is so behind and Congress had to nudge them several times in appropriation acts and get the Federal Aviation Administration to let drones be integrated into domestic skies. And everyone's like, oh, they're not contemplating automation. They're not, you know, how are we gonna do delivery robots and everything? Then the companies are like, we're gonna go to other jurisdictions where the laws are more open and we're gonna take, you know, drop, you know uh, drone delivery there. It has been like 10 years. We don't have drone delivery. It's not because of the law. You see what I mean? It's because drone delivery is super hard. Robots are super hard. You know what I mean? I mean, it's really, really difficult to make drone delivery efficient because you have to deal with the energy uh, uh, ratio, the, the more weight you wanna put on that drone, the more it adds to the necessity of having a battery or, or another form of energy that's hard to do. It has to do with the, the difficulty of navigating autonomously because if you're really gonna just take a drone and put it and, and like have somebody you know fly the drone around, you might as well put somebody on a bicycle and deliver that that same package if, you have, if every single one has to have an operator and so on. And the jurisdictions that have been uh, 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 experimental and the places where we've relaxed requirements, both in the United States as an experiment or in other jurisdictions, they don't have it either. Same with driverless cars. How long have we had driverless car legislation, for example, in, in Nevada? I mean, it's been a long time, right? And they said, you can test it here and here's the parameters and that kind of thing. Other places have even fewer restrictions and so on. I mean, we don't have widespread driverless cars. Why? Because it's super hard, because robots are hard. And so I just don't believe this narrative <laughs> that the law is always catching up to robots. I think the law is like, okay, well, here you go, go, go ahead. And then roboticists are like, yeah, well, thank you very much. And then they just can't do it because it's super hard. you know. And so um, I, I, I think that one of the, the dangers is to 
act like whatever robot happens to have gotten its shit. Oh, can I swear in this podcast or is that not? Oh, okay, you can bleep it out if it's never going to be on um, NPR or something. Um, so I think I think that you know one danger is that when whenever a company gets its shit together enough to come up with a particular instantiation of a robot, and then they go lobby somewhere, usually a state legislature, and tell them, you know. Um, this is how robot is. This is how robots are going to work in this in this context. I think that is a a big source of a problem, and it's a big source of a problem because the law is reacting too fast. It's reacting too fast, and I'll give you an example, which is with with land based delivery. You have Starship saying, you know, we have this robot. It's got certain uh, weighs a certain amount it goes on wheels it can do this it can do that we want a, a law that says this is okay and then trying to look futuristic or whatever trying to look innovative this legislature passes these laws saying you can deliver things with robots as long as they have these characteristics right you're boston dynamic and you've built spot that doesn't have wheels but it can walk upstairs and it weighs a little more than what you're supposed to have. You know what I mean? And so, and so on. And, and, it, and it does, it, it does something a little bit differently. All of a sudden you can't even use it in that state unless you go back to the legislature and say, you know, we're really going to need you to do this. There was an example with the, with the FAA recently. Um, police are buying these, these flying systems that are tethered to the ground but they don't fit within the definitions, either state or federal of unmanned aerial systems. And so they, they avoid the regulation that would attach to drones because they're not technically unmanned aerial systems because they're tethered is the argument. You know, again, what matters? What matters is the new affordances. What matters is the ability to do something you couldn't do before or to have to do something differently than you did before. It's the capacity that robots add, not the, largely contingent configuration of those robots that 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 matter and so i think if anything law is moving too fast and if the problems and if there's problems with robots doing what they're supposed to it's the robots i've done a little bit of uh, research in the field of human robotic interaction and one of the narratives that surprised me that i came across in some of that research is this word that you've mentioned innovation and uh being on the other side of regulation. So regulation is getting in the way of innovation. And I'm curious from your perspective, whether that is a true statement as we've seen it on the ground or how do you put those two terms in conversation with each other? No, that is, that is a, that is a, a um, okay. <laughs> There's a lot to say about this. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm a little bit like I'm, I'm, I'm rambling, but um, okay. So first of all, um, of course, if you want the freedom to just do what you want to do, you're going to be like, this is innovation and any kind of limit on me is going to chill innovation. Do you know what I mean? Of course you're going to say that. Who, who wouldn't say that, right? Um, and yet the, the actual picture is much more complicated. So first of all, robotics and artificial intelligence would not be anywhere near where they are, although not as far along as some people believe if not for initial government investment. You know what I mean? So this innovation, you know where it came from? It came from collecting taxes from people and spending it in a particular way on basic research before there was a commercial incentive to do so. Silicon Valley is built on 
the military industrial complex that came before it. There's no question about that. Um, um, uh, my colleague, uh, Margaret um, uh, O'Mara has a, a, a great book and I'm just looking to see if I can spot the title about, about this, the origins. But you can also see it in um, you know, uh, Markov's uh, Machines of Love and Grace and other places, right? So that's the, that's the, the, the truth. You know, it's just that this stuff is, you know, there, there's no serious robotic or artificial intelligence application that did not have a, 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 a origin in you know, NSF or DARPA or something like that. Okay, second of all, there are very well understood ways in which regulation um, makes innovation possible and patent is an obvious example. You know what I mean? I mean, what is patent? It's a regulation says you can't copy stuff that other people invented for a certain period of time, right? Not only does patent, I'm, I'm not an IP lawyer, but I mean, basically everybody knows, you know, patent is supposed to incentivize innovation. It's a regulation that does that. Uh, but in addition, when you can't do something a particular way because there's a patent in your way, you, the literature suggests that that's often what you get innovation because you have to accomplish the same thing a different way. You see what I mean? And so, and so like, because you can't do it the patented way, so what other way can you do? And then you go, oh my goodness, this way is actually better, cheaper, faster, whatever it happens to be, okay? Um, the other thing too is people are not going to adopt things, especially in this more skeptical environment we are now, if they don't believe there's basic safeguards around it. People are not gonna take vaccines unless they are convinced that there's a regulatory process that makes that safe. You know, People initially did not want to do banking on the internet because they were deeply afraid, appropriately so, about the prospect of theft and identity theft. And there had to be adequate safeguards put into place and they turned out to be security standards in that instance, although eventually also security breach notification laws, right? Um, that made people feel, feel comfortable. Right? So yes, while there are narrow examples where regulation might stand in the way of some innovation in some cases, right? it is a very complicated picture and innovation is deployed rhetorically to get out of the way of companies that really are seeking to do a regulatory arbitrage. Because what they say is innovation, 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 then they wait till everybody's taking Uber and then they use their access to everybody because they're on their apps to tell them they should sign a petition uh, making Uber retroactively lawful. You see what I mean? Um, and so, so it's, it's complicated and it is related, I think, to um, your, your point, Jess, was about um, tech, you know, law keeping up with technology, right? That's part of that story. So that if you think about the, the David Collingridge, the Collingridge dilemma, um, it's the idea that the problem with technology is you don't know what its societal effects will be until it's already entrenched. And so it's difficult to figure out when to regulate technology because if you regulate it or too early, you're gonna chill innovation. And if you regulate it um, too late, it will be so entrenched that you will have much less wiggle room. And so you have to find the perfect time and place to, to regulate. People like Gaia Bernstein have written about when is the perfect place to regulate. Um, and so, uh, and so um, you know, that is that is only true um, if putting safeguards in advance were neither feasible nor desirable. But my own view is that 
having institutional structures, having safeguards in advance that are written at a sufficient level of generality so that they're not picking winners and losers in the, in the system can, can make everything go, you know, go apace and that it's a false dichotomy. Can we actually unpack this Colling uh, Reg dilemma? I've never heard of this before. I think this is really spot on here because I, I've heard about a lot of robot regulation now from from you mostly, but also um, I've heard of the other side where there's a lot of robot harm and uh, we can speak broadly about like AI harm in general too due to mm -hmm. lack of regulation. So like with this dilemma and not knowing, you know, when to regulate, when it's too entrenched or not entrenched enough, like when do we do regulation? When, how do we know when it's the right time? Um, so that that is a that is a great um, uh, question. Uh, so the um, the the Coleridge dilemma um, comes from a book by David Coleridge that's called the Social Techno Control of Technology, um, and it has been um, I think misconstrued a bit. Um, I don't know willfully or not, but it's been picked up by the sort of techno libertarians who have re reframed it as a pacing problem and a reason that we need permissionless innovation, right? So let me start with the original, Coleridge's original point. Coleridge's original point was that um, he, was in, he was yet another anti-determinist. He, he was a person who was reacting to determinism about techno, technological determinism, which says essentially that somehow uh, uh, technology follows a particular path and has determined effects on, on the world when in fact technology is, you know, one of the central insights of science technology studies is that, is that in fact technology has this complex, you know, iterative, dynamic, mutual relationship with other aspects of society. You know what I mean? And so if that's true, then you don't know what effects the technology will have in advance. You see what I mean? And so, um, and, and so if you, and if you were to intercede too soon, uh, you would be, that would be hubris. You would be trying to guess what, what technology was gonna do in the world and there's, then there's no way to do that. However, if you wait too long, then at that point, technology will become intermeshed with, with the world in such a way that it becomes sort of difficult and your choices are constrained in how you regulate technology because people are used to it, they rely upon it. People have invested in it and so on. And so, um, you know, different scholars have looked at uh, how do you optimize, you know, what, you know, when to do it. And they've thought about breaking technology into phases, this phase, that phase, and you should do it during the phase two or whatever. But, you know, then they get resistance from the anti-determinists who say, well, that's deterministic and technology doesn't always go through phases like what you're saying, you know? Uh, the truth is, is that if you, if, you, if you go too strong in either direction, you're, you're left in a bad place. So I, I, don't, mean, I don't mean literally if you, if you intervene too early or if you intervene too late, you're in a bad place from a regulatory standpoint. I mean, intellectually. Intellectually, if you let yourself think, we can't know anything about technology's impacts, and technology is like not even a different kind. It's like technology is like just like other kinds of social facts, and we it doesn't behave the same way. It doesn't raise the same issues. It's just totally different. You know, if you if you find yourself in that heavily anti-determinist sort of social constructivist idea, and, and you know, then 
then you, you're going to be paralyzed. You're, you're never going to be able to channel technology because you'll, you, you can never know anything about it without just observing it. So you wind up with these beautiful, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, case studies. Um, uh, I feel like uh, Winner uh, um, uh, wrote about this, but uh, opening the empty box, opening the black box and finding it empty. You know, you wind up with these beautiful case studies that tell you the intricacies of how technology actually played out in practice but they're not operationalizable beyond that context. And so you can't use them to channel technology one way or the other, right? Whereas if intellectually you say to yourself, we need to embrace that and let technology play out and only in retrospect can we just like sort of try to minimize the harms that we see later on, you end up in this techno-libertarian world where, you know, the internet, like hate speech is rampant, misinformation is rampant, um, you know, uh, uh, especially the marginalized are being negatively affected, um, et cetera. And, and, but, we're, but we're paralyzed by, by different kinds of interests who want to preserve immunity for platforms or their ability to do electronic surveillance or whatever it happens to be. And, we, we, and we're stuck. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the combination of federal law, the First Amendment, you know, um, and so on makes it impossible for us. We have no room to maneuver. So I think both extremes are wrong. Um, now, I don't know exactly when the right time is intervene, I, to intervene, but rather I know that not all interventions are the same. What you shouldn't do is come in and say, take and, and reify or enshrine or, or codify the first example of an instantiation of a technology. Rather, you should ask yourself, um, what set of affordances um, does this technology uh, uh, create? You know what I mean? Like what does this technology permit us to do differently or, or that we couldn't do before? Um, in the case of drones, it has to do with the perspective that we're able to take on things. You know, we can see things from above in a way that we couldn't before. Or maybe we can even um, manipulate things that we couldn't reach before. Um, robotics, generally, we can, um, we can operate in dangerous environments where humans couldn't, couldn't operate. Um, there are cases involving uh, undersea exploration, for example, and there will be cases involving uh, mining of asteroids and things like that. Um, we can solve problems in ways that uh, no human would, would have occurred to them to solve it. So all of a sudden we're playing Go or chess differently because we've brought to bear these technologies. So what are the differences in affordances and, and, and what gaps do they create and what opportunities do they create? You know, I, I like to talk about, um, you know, sort of gaps, gaps and levers, you know, like what gaps do they create in the law, but what additional levers do they give us to accomplish our goals? Robotics is interesting to me, especially in reading op-eds and th there's a particular emotional valence of either uh, robots taking our jobs in the economic sense or just robots replacing humanity in some way that, I, like I wasn't around when they invented fire, but I don't know if people would have been writing op-eds about how fire was replacing our jobs, even if it was like adding a tool. So for you, I guess coming from a perspective in law, but maybe just in general, someone who writes and thinks a lot about these things, is robotics different? And if so, why? Like, would we, or should we regulate robotics in a different way than the internet or fire or another technology? Um, and if so, why? Yeah, you know, it's a funny thing about technology is, um, you know, it's, it's whatever's new, 
You know what I mean? It's like it's whatever's new. What what I can't remember his name right now, so I'm, I I wish I could attribute this. I don't like to say things without attribution. But another scholar I read talked about how um, notice how we talk about our technology sector, but it does not include cars or you know what I mean or fr fr refrigerators or anything else that are certainly technology, right? Let alone uh, fire. You know, our cooking. You know, the sh <laughs> chefs are not part of the technology industry and it's because we associate technology with novelty you know and 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 in that way robots are quintessential technology i mean they are they are literally meant to herald meant to herald novelty that's their that's their pretty much their purpose and that's their purpose for like i mean many many centuries i mean there's sort of ancient arabic times there's like you know uh there's like these hydraulic machines that are in these catalogs that are supposed to be like you know um wondrous things you know way predate of the birth of Christ. Um, and so, you know, ancient Greece and so on. And so, but so, but robots are, are different in other ways too. And they have to do with um, the fact that we have different, we have difficulty, they have a social meaning that other technologies don't have. Um, we tend to, um, we tend, are, we're a bit hardwired to react to anthropomorphic technologies like robots as though they were really people. Um, and that is special and different and merits particular consideration, but it's also been the source of interpretive difficulty for the courts. And when the courts have struggled with putting robots into a particular place, it's because they exist in some liminal world. I mean, I can give you countless examples. I'll, I'll just tell you one of my favorite stories, if I may, but this is one of my favorite cases of all time. I love it so much. Okay. Um, so <laughs> in the 1990s, in Maryland, okay, there was this Chuck E. Cheese. You guys know Chuck E. Cheese, I, I imagine, yeah. But for, for any listener who doesn't know Chuck E. Cheese, Chuck E. Cheese is like a kid's pizza restaurant. And one of the attractions of it is that it has these, or used to have these animatronic bands, these giant like caricature, like these characters, this mouse, this vaguely, uh, xenophobic uh, Italian uh, figure, you know, whatever, a bunch of, a bunch of sort of, you know, a bunch of, um, a bunch of, I just want, I also want listeners to know that, but that both uh, Jess and, and Dylan are laughing at my uh, really good jokes and you just can't hear them because they're on mute, but I can see them and they're laughing. So Brian, Brian it's, it's only because I spent at least five of my birthday parties growing up in the nineties uh, going to Chuck E. Cheese. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Let the, let the record reflect that um, this is funny. Um, so anyway, so you have, you have, the, you have these um, animatronic uh, things. And so uh, these enterprising tax authorities went, went into Chuck E. Cheese, they're looking for ways to, to have money. And they said, you know what? I think we're gonna need to charge a, perf a performance tax on the food you're serving here. Because there's obviously a performance. I mean, every 15, 20 minutes, these animatronic things come alive and they do like a whole thing. And so a court had to decide whether or not robots could be said to perform. And at, at issue was like a considerable tax on all the food sold within every Chuck E. Cheese in the state of Maryland. You know what I mean? And the court sort of hemmed and hawed and looked up these definitions and whatever and decided ultimately that robots could not be said to perform because performance requires spontaneity and that these robots are incapable of spontaneity. Now, 
you know, that may have been true of Chuck E. Cheese robots from the 1990s, right? But it certainly is not an, ad an adequate description of all robots all the time, you know, and there, there are many examples I can cite to where there is the appearance, at least of spontaneous, you don't know in advance what they're going to do. But the fact is, is like, it was about that difficulty, like, are, are they performing like people? Or are they just playing something like a jukebox, but you don't have a situation where people are like, you know, there's a performance because the performance is coming in over the speaker or there's a performance, you know what I mean? Like that, that did not raise the same question. It was the, it was the category problem, you know? And psychologists talk about this. Psychologists talk about, I mean, the, my, my colleague, Peter Kahn and, and others have written about, who's a psychologist and a human ro robot interaction person have written about the, the potential need for a new, ontological category for robots because they just don't seem to fit in with like brick person you know what i mean they're just in between it's, see it's interesting i imagine part of the difficulty in for example let's let's keep using this example of regulating chuck e cheese robots is that we don't actually know how to do it because it is so novel and so i'm wondering like who is making these decisions is it the people who specialize in chuck e cheese robots is it a lawyer who's particularly fascinated in chuck e cheese like who is actually making these decisions and what makes them capable of making these decisions or maybe what makes it difficult for them to make these decisions well okay so that's a that's a great question so in the case of uh the the common law or in the case of statutory interpretation um which is what you know both of those cases i gave you about the tariffs and about performance tax were about um it's really a, a a court that has to that has to make the decision and courts are pretty adept at that i mean there's a there's a whole structure in in place that uh, allows for bringing in external expertise at the appellate level, you can have amicus briefs from people that, that work on the issue. And so there, there are mechanisms to get judges the expertise that they might need in order to resolve a particular issue, right? Um, it's imperfect. Judges certainly, you know, make decisions I wouldn't make because they have, a, in my view, a, an outdated mental model. In, indeed, I think while, while it may be true that the robots in the Chuck E. Cheese example we're not spontaneous. I don't think it's true as a category that that robots can't be spontaneous. Um, you know, I think the trouble comes in when you have uh, lawmakers who don't have adequate expertise, or you have regulatory agencies that don't have adequate ex expertise. They have a lot of expertise in what they do, aviation. You know, um, they have a lot of expertise in food and drug administration and whatever you know they, they they have expertise in certain things but they don't have expertise in the way that robots work and i'll give you a couple of examples of i think um i'll give you an example of a time when i think um you know well let me back up to me a rather dramatic example of why agent of how agencies have struggled with cyber physical systems and in fact how they've kind of um grown or evolved to some extent um, is, do you remember when there was that Toyota sudden acceleration problem? So, so th there was this issue years ago, though, though not that many years ago, um, where Toyota's 
people who drove a certain kind of Toyota were reporting that all of a sudden the, the, the car would accelerate. And some accidents were blamed on this and they thought it was, a, and, and so um, Toyota said, well, no, this is a human error. Like we, we made the, um, we, something about the pedal that sticks or, or we, we put the carpet in there in such a way that it's causing this. And so it's, it's just a, we got to fix this, but it's mechanical in nature. But people told Congress that, no, actually this is like maybe a software bug. And that's a big deal. If there's a software bug that's making Toyotas accelerate, that's a huge deal because there's millions of them. So, uh, so Congress goes to the Department of Transportation, understandably, and says, hey, you know, we need to know whether or not the sudden acceleration is from, is from um, the code. And the Department of Transportation is like, oh, God, I mean, I don't know how we're going to figure this out. You know what I mean? Like, we, <laughs> like how are we going to figure this out? So what they end up doing is they end up going to NASA. Okay. They end up going to NASA and they're like, you, you folks work on this. You know what I mean? And, and so, so imagine that for a moment. You know what I mean? Imagine that they, you, you go to NASA and you're like, could you take a break from putting robots on Mars for a moment and look at this Toyota for us? You know? And so NASA did. NASA looked at the Toyota, looked at the code, looked at everything else because they build these systems. And after months, they ended up largely clearing Toyota of, of there being a, a software bug. You see what I mean? But I mean, that's not a sustainable model. You can't have NASA look at every everything, you know? And, and I think similarly with the Boeing um, uh, uh, problems with the Boeing uh, jet, another, it was just so difficult for them to figure out, you know, where was the problem? Where, you know, where was it? Because, because that expertise is, is, is lacking, but, you know, uh, I think it's getting better. I mean, they're having to hire more and more and more people to do this. And so when the, um, when the Uber accident, autom autonomous Uber killed that woman in Arizona, right? You know, National Highway Transportation Station, they, they, DOT was able actually to do a pretty um, thorough assessment um, with, but they did need the input from, from Uber itself. They needed a lot of cooperation from Uber itself. Um, anyway, my, my, my basic point is just that, you know, I think there's a dearth in expertise of a particular kind. And I have in fact argued that we ought to have like a, um, an agency that the whole purpose of which is to help other policymakers make wiser decisions about robots and artificial intelligence. Um, and I've argued, I, there, I have a, a, a Brookings uh, piece from years ago that's called the case for the Federal Robotics Commission um, I gave it as a talk at the Aspen Ideas Festival years ago and so on. So this is ideas, you know, I have about like having adequate expertise because it's needed. As we move towards wrapping up the interview, um, I'm going to, I guess, ask you a question that's connected to what you just said, but also is a blatantly unfair question. Um, what does ideal robot regulation look like? And does it exist, I guess? Yeah, no. So I, I really think it's context specific. Okay, I mean, so so often you hear about artificial intelligence that you can't regulate it because it's not a thing. You know what I mean? It's it's you know, and and you know, you think of it as like it's a genie in a bottle, and you open that bottle up and you just apply it to a different. I'm sure you've heard not on your podcast because the people that you interview don't think that way, but you've heard other people talk that way about AI. Is that you just apply it to everything and it just makes it better? 
Um, and so there's, like, there's this mental model that it's like a magic genie in a, in a bottle and it wouldn't make sense or be desirable to regulate such a thing, right? But, um, but there are a bunch of ways in which the existence of AI um, exposes a breakdown in regulation or law that we can and should fix. And one example that I think is not obvious is um, the interaction with anti-hacking law. Okay, so so for example, you know, you know, if if you want to, the way that we find out whether artificial intelligence that's been deployed in the real world is harming people. Okay, so is making them unsafe because the threshold for object detection has been set too low on an Uber so it hits somebody crossing the street or um, it harms people because it's, it doesn't work for, for people of color. It, 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 it disproportionately recommends longer sentences or, 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 make, or causes the police to believe that there's gonna be an outbreak of violence in a black community when, when that isn't the fact. Um, the way we find these things out is because researchers kick the tires on these systems. You know what I mean? Like journalists, sometimes lawyers, um, academic researchers look at these systems and see what how they work and see what their impacts are. Yet there is always the concern or the sort of Damocles hanging over these researchers that the company is gonna get mad and gonna threaten to um, sue them. Um, and in fact, you know, if you think that that sounds like ridiculous, I mean, just think about the other day, Facebook sends a cease and desist letter to NYU over its political ad scraping tool. You know what I mean? Basically saying, stop scraping our, our system, even though the way that the researchers had architected it is they created a browser tool that people voluntarily opt into. And then that shows the researchers what the, so like the users themselves are like giving a a view into the um, system, not, um, you know, and, and, and so nevertheless, Facebook is, is, is cease and desist letter, presumably on uh, uh, threatening them under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, right? So I believe that the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and other laws like it ought to all have exceptions for research to hold these systems more accountable and that would be better for the whole ecosystem, right? There's another, another quick example about the same topic is you know this, but there's something called adversarial machine learning. I'm not sure, I mean, maybe you don't, but adversarial, I assume you do, but adversarial machine learning for anyone who's listening who doesn't know is the idea that you would um, take a trained system that's supposed to um, make decisions or, or classify things in the world um, and purposely perturb images or change the world so that you, so that you trick that system, that you, you make the system see something that isn't there. For, for example, my colleagues um, showed that you could slightly perturb a stop sign in such a way that none of us would recognize a big difference, but you put these stickers on the stop sign and all of a sudden it, a, a, a driverless car perceives it as a speed sign. You know what I mean? So that's, that's an example that comes out of the University of Washington. So if you do that, that is scary because you have deployed systems that will then potentially be tricked, right? But it's not hacking under the traditional understanding of hacking because you're not bypassing a security protocol. You're not breaking into the system 
by you know by exceeding your authorization or 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 having no authority you're not breaking into the system and changing things but rather you're just giving it a stimulus that makes it behave in a way that you want and what that so so said another way as as systems become more smarter and smarter and smarter they can be tricked even if they can't be hacked. And yet our definitions of anti-hacking, the ways that we try to prevent malicious hacking, define hacking as bypassing a security protocol and getting into that system and exfiltrating things or damaging things. Whereas this is just a way in which you're just tricking systems by understanding how the models work. Um, so I've argued and my colleagues have argued in a paper called Is Tricking a Robot Hacking? that we need to uh, uh, change security standards so that it becomes inadequate security to release an AI into the world that's too easy to fool. Now these are concrete changes to the law that are absolutely necessitated by artificial intelligence. Do you see what I mean? Th 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 there's no other way to think about them as that <laughs> than as that, but um, they're not regulating AI per se. They're just changing laws and legal institutions and precedents to adapt to the prevalence of AI, which in turn has certain affordances that didn't exist before, certain negative affordances and positive affordances. Well, Ryan, clearly there's so many more <laughs> questions that we could explore on this topic with you, but unfortunately we've reached the end of our time. So for those listeners who might be uh, policymakers, researchers, roboticists, and everywhere in between who are looking to take this conversation a bit further, where is the best place for them to go to maybe see a little bit more of your work or to uh, get in touch with you? Uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm easy to find. I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm a law professor at the University of Washington. You can just look me up. Um, I'm on Twitter at RCALO. Um, but the place I really want to direct people interested in this conversation is the We Robot Conference. We Robot. It is the annual robotics and law conference, the premier conference, at least in North America, if not, if not more broadly. And it's where technologists, you know, roboticists get together with law people, law professors, policymakers, and talk about these issues. We do it every year. The 10th anniversary is this fall. Um, you know, check out We Robot. And we'll be sure to include all those links as well as many more in the show notes. But for now, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about all of this with us. Oh, it was fun. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Jess, the question that started us off today was what is robot regulation and why does it matter? And I think Ryan gave us a wonderful uh, set of explanations and descriptions about what robot regulation is out in the field. And now I'm wondering for both of us, what do we think? Why does it matter? So let's start with you. Why does it matter? Whew, yeah, really throwing me the softball there, aren't you? <laughs> so yeah, robot regulation, I'm not going to speak to why it matters for everyone, because I think Ryan just outlined some amazing information for all of us that was really good um, breadth description of why this matters in many different domains. But I think one of the biggest things that stood out for me in this conversation was that Robot regulation is something that is 
temporal and has temporal importance. And when I say that, I mean that the timing of our regulation is really, really important for making sure that we don't cause harm to society. And I just keep coming back to this cooling ridge principle that he was talking about in that if we start regulating too soon we don't know what our technologies are going to be harmful and in what ways and if we start regulating too late then it's already super entrenched in society and we trust these systems too much and it's so embedded that it's just too late to do anything and I never really thought about that for before with tech regulation in general is that I guess I just always made the assumption that like you know the earlier that we begin to speculate about the harms of technology, the better. But after this conversation with Ryan, I'm realizing that it matters that we think about when we're thinking about regulation. It's kind of meta, but um, I, I never really thought about that before. And I thought that was really interesting. What about you, Dylan? So as a social scientist, why I think robot regulation matters is because I think it really feeds into how we think about ourselves as humans and also as a society, like questions about uh, what it means to be categorized as a robot versus as an android versus as just a cell phone versus a human versus a dog versus all these different categories that we've like constructed into our lives that we create meaning out of. Uh, and that question of like regulation persists in all of it, right? We've created the law in order to put boundaries um, especially moral boundaries around things that are right and wrong and things that can happen and things that can't happen. And so when we talk about like robots and, and when I think about robots as a category, I can't help but think about, you know, humans as a category and then questions of like, well, what is not human, but also like looks like a human or talks like a human. And then if it, you know, walks and talks like a human, is it a human? Like those kind of bigger questions um, around robotics. And that's not to say that all of these ideas are just like high flying either. Like, I think the reason why this matters is because there were like real immediate consequences to how we are um, defining these categories, especially the category of robot. And I, I think that plays out economically in terms of the workforce, in terms of um, how we think about information, how we think about like the category of human, how we treat different people. Like it doesn't all like, really, this is so wide reaching. And that's something I really appreciated about this conversation with Ryan is just how big of an umbrella robot regulation is for something that you would think is like so specific in time and place or just like has emerged within the last, you know, even 70 years or, or whatever. It's, um, it really, I think, impacts a lot more than we think it does. Yeah, totally. And I, I think you just reminded me of another big takeaway that I was actually thinking um, in the background of our entire conversation with Ryan, and I think it's that in the AI ethics and just responsible tech space, this is something you and Dylan and I have kind of been discussing a little bit too recently, there's a lot of lip service that happens. And so there's a lot of like vague statements of action that we tell our community like, well, there's a problem with AI, there's a problem with technology, there's a problem with robots, regulate it or regulate them. And uh, that's kind of just where we leave it. Like, I don't really say like, 
and how or and what that actually means and how we do that. And uh, I'm in this class right now that's taught by one of my PhD advisors, Casey Fiesler, about technology, ethics, and policy. And for the first time, I'm kind of like diving into the weeds of what it actually means to regulate technologies and realizing that in certain case studies, there's always like a loophole in every law you could create. There's always some harm that's going to be done to some people based off of the principles that we base our norms and our regulations on. And there's never really like a perfect answer for anything legally. And so it's such like a granular and complex system. So to hear Ryan actually speaking to what some of these ideas for regulation are and what some of these um, laws historically have been and how they've played out. Uh, over time, I think was just like really nice to finally hear instead of just like the vague, let's regulate it more of like the the intricate, um, I guess, uh, unpacking of the how and the what that actually means. As we look at these different areas and domains of AI and technology, and where we look at like the industry, and now we're looking at law, and we look at, uh, you know, the academy, uh, it's almost disheartening to me to see like such similarities in some of the issues that we're that we're looking at, especially in terms of like who is making decisions that impact like wide swaths of people or I guess robots <laughs> in this case. Um, but like thinking like syst- systemically, it's it's kind of like it's a little it's still a little scary to me to be like, hmm, actually the same. And this is something that uh, Dr. Timnit Gebru said when when she was on the show, where like actually that like academy over here on one side of the fence and industry on the other side of the fence is a false dichotomy because you have the people in the academy who are being employed as consultants to the industry to then um, make decisions. And then those people are also going to go be experts on like the Congress panels, which will then inform the briefs that create the policy. And it's just like, it's systems are systems to a certain degree. And there are certain people and certain, um, I guess, identities, which are being represented in these decisions to a much larger degree than other certain identities. And um, that is, you know, we talk about power a lot on this show, and that's kind of, I think, at, at the heart of it. And law is all about power and exercising power. And so I think just one thing that um, I was thinking about during this conversation with Ryan is just like how those systems of power are uh, enacted and then also like who who is there who are creating these systems of power and recreating these systems of power. Absolutely. And of course, this was only one example of systems of power that we've explored on this show. And we will continue to explore how power is distributed uh, generally unevenly and inequitably throughout the ways that we create our technologies. But for now, that's it for today's show. So for more information, please visit the episode page at RadicalAI.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Catch our new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Join our conversation on Twitter at RadicalAIPod. And as always, stay radical. Good candor on that one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Got some fire in my belly. Got some robot regulation. In your belly. In my belly. (laughs) I want to get that checked out. (laughs) 
they have doctors for that? Is it like a chiropractor? <laughs> a robot fracture? A robot A chiro robot? A chirobot. That's oh. what we need. That's that a different way. Like it needs to be regulated. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a good ending point. Alright. <laughs> <laughs>